Hey guys, it's Graham. Um, this is going to be a bit of a different episode because obviously with everything that's going on in the world, um, myself, Phil, Kit, and Lillian have all decided to not meet to record our podcast due to health reasons um, and to make sure that we uh, don't accidentally give each other the coronavirus or compromise any of our or put any of our health at risk by traveling to, uh, to my place to record. Um, I'm holding tight here in the cave of cinema. Um, and we managed to record an episode. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to sound technically. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a challenge for me to edit it because we had to record it online and, uh, that's always easy to do apparently. Um, but it's very difficult. The other difficult thing is that this episode is dedicated to Stuart Gordon who passed away last week. Um, Stuart Gordon, who most of you, if you're listening to this podcast, know who he is. He is a well-known director of horror films, um, but he was so much more, not to say that being a director of horror films isn't enough, but he he made some of the most creative and unique horror films, and he had such a great influence in literature because he, um, with his first film, well, let's just start. My favorite Stuart Gordon film is his first film, and it's probably your favorite film of his as well. It's Reanimator, which was based on the H.P. Lovecraft uh, story, Herbert West Reanimator. And we should kind of point out, like, Lovecraft as a influence was, it was kind of around, you saw it a bit with John Carpenter's The Thing and his movie Prince of Darkness, but he, as an actual known quantity, was pretty much disappearing by the 80s there had been adaptations of his short stories into works before like uh with uh, uh die monster die and i believe um uh, what else there were a bunch of adaptations of the color out of space but he really wasn't a known quantity like even uh there was a, a roger corman hp lovecraft adaptation called the haunted palace which was actually not called like H.P. Lovecraft's The Haunted Palace. It was called Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace because Roger Corman had had so much success with um, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations in the past. And at the end of the film, they just have uh, a character read an Edgar Allan Poe film, and that's how they justify calling it Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. Um, so he he got a lot of kids to read H.P. Lovecraft, myself included. He also showed that you could adapt H.P. Lovecraft for the modern times. Um reanimator is not a direct adaptation of the book herbert west reanimator it is greatly different it includes female characters and sexuality which hp lovecraft being a noted misogynist very rarely included female characters in his in his work and he was largely known to think of sexuality as something disgusting and dirty that is beneath him um but i was very sad to hear of his passing because he you know, he, he's up there as one of the greats, up there with Toby Hooper, who's also passed, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, who's also passed, Sam Raimi, who's still around, um, and of course, George Romero, who's my favorite director of all time. But Stuart Gordon, like, his films were unique. Like, Reanimator could have been just a straightforward zombie film, a straightforward Dawn of the Dead knockoff, or even a Return of the Living Dead knockoff, but it's completely its own thing like the zombies in it don't act like other zombies they're not even really called zombies they're just they're people that herbert west the reanimator was able to reanimate and bring back to life however they've all come back you know damaged because their brain cells have been toasted from being dead for hours um 
He also, I mean, he started his career as a theater director in Chicago in 1968. He founded the Organic Theater Company and put on many plays. He discovered David Mamet uh, with his play Sexual Perversity in Chicago, which was adapted into the feature film About Last Night, starring Demi Moore and Rob Lowe, which got remade, I think, in 2014 or 2017 with Kevin Hart and some other actors. Um and he wanted to do Reanimator as the Organic Theater Company's first feature film because he would, you know, cast these upcoming actors in his plays. Um, talent scouts would be in the uh, the audience, and they would, you know, sign them up uh, to agents and get them uh, cast elsewhere. Like he discovered Joe Montana and Dennis Franz. Um, so he decided, well, there's so much good talent here. Like let's let's make our own movie, and so he pitched it to his own theater company and they turned him down because they didn't want to do a horror film. They wanted to do an art film. Um, so he went off and started doing movies. I mean, he, you know, uh, I don't want to run through his entire filmography, but he, you know, he did return of the living dead, return of the living dead. That's totally wrong. He did reanimator. He did dolls. He did HP Lovecraft's from beyond, which was another HP Lovecraft adaptation, which basically just took the first, the first 10 minutes of from beyond are the actual adaptation of the story. And then everything after that is his own. Um, he did Robot Jocks, which was a total left turn, uh, awesome fun. Uh, if you've seen Pacific Rim, it's kind of like Pacific Rim, but before Pacific Rim, uh, where there are people that um, operate these giant robots that have to fight. However, it's political. We're in the future. All There's no wars anymore. Everything's decided through giant robots fighting for our entertainment. Um, he also brought back the live action kids movie with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with Brian Usna. He produced the, that film. He also produced its sequel, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And the entire time he was still making films, like he made Fortress, which is probably his biggest, uh, not his biggest budget, but it was his, his biggest hit, I think. Maybe Reanimator made more. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Then he went from doing that to doing a very low budget film in... Uh, Castle Freak, which I love the story of it because he basically was just sitting in Charles, notorious cheap, cheapo producer Charles Band. And that's not a knock on Charles Band. Charles Band has produced a lot of entertaining, fun movies, but he is notorious for his frugalness. Um, and on the poster, on the wall, there was a poster for a movie called Castle Freak. And Stuart Gordon was like, oh, what's what's that movie about? And Charles Band said, well, it's coming out in six months. And it's about this castle where within it, there is a freak. Do you want to do it for five hundred thousand uh, dollars? And that's five hundred thousand dollars for the entire production. So, and he had to write, produce, direct, and get the movie finished in less than six months. Probably, in, probably in four months to get it done in time to be released uh, on home video. It was largely a home video release, but it's it's dynamite. It's streaming on Shutter. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs did it as part of Joe Bob Briggs' The Last Drive-In series on Shutter. I highly recommend that episode. Um, he also really discovered the actors Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Coombs, who are in Reanimator, who are, uh, you know, two of my favorite actors. Like Barbara Crampton, ever since she made an appearance in Your Next in 2013, has had her career resurrected, which is awesome. She's producing films now. In fact, she just produced a remake of Castle Freak uh, with an all female cast and crew, or all female crew, female director. Um, I'm fascinated to see how that turns out because there are a lot, it, you know, a lot of his work shatters certain taboos as we'll get into with Reanimator, but uh, he can always continue to push, you know, certain boundaries in his films. I mean, probably the most boundary pushing film he did was actually an adaptation of a David Mamet play in 2005 called Edmund starring William H. Macy and Julia Stiles. Um, and uh, and it's it's one of the most unsettling things to sit through it's not a horror film at all it's it's more of a, a very dark fable 
about a very racist, horrible human being. Um, he also did Space Truckers, so which is a big sci-fi movie in, in 1995, which apparently didn't do well, and that kind of like pushed him back to doing more lower, lower budget fare, but he still was able to make his original works. He did the film Stuck in 2007. He did several episodes of the Masters of Horror TV series. He also did an episode of um, the Fear Itself uh, television series, which was a, a sequel series to the Masters of Horror. And, you know... From his filmmaking career went from two, uh, 1985 to 2007, so it was 22 years, which is not that long. I mean, even considering George Romero, his first film was 1968, and his last film was, I think, 2006 or 2007. So, like, he got 50, uh, 40 years out of it. So he had a very, he had a very short career, but he had a lot of good work. I mean, he did the films. Uh, Dagon is another great film that he did. We're going to talk about all this on the podcast. I'm just giving my own personal thing that he was an influence to me and I am incredibly sorry to hear of his passing. And especially with everything that's going on now, it's like we can't even hold a... When George Romero passed away, there were commemorative screenings throughout Toronto and throughout, I'm sure, Los Angeles, New York, places like that. But with this, we can't even gather to publicly celebrate his career and his, his work. Um... So hopefully when all this is over, we can actually have a, a proper screening of some of his work. Um, and I'm uh, now going to turn it over to us from what we recorded uh, a couple days ago. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we I hope you're all safe. Taking care of yourselves. Please don't go out unless you absolutely have to. Wash your hands uh, and stay healthy. And uh, here's the episode. Here's a movie. The map is in ninjas or a crazy death machine There'll be smiles, there'll be tears You won't watch a movie for about 8 billion years It's time for death by video Time for death by video And now the show will begin. Is that what you were uh, recording on? Yeah, yeah, that's the best way to do it. So, hey guys, it's Graham. Um, this is going to be a different episode of Death by Video. Uh, due to the coronavirus uh, pandemic, we are all recording this remotely. And I just accidentally deleted the first half hour we recorded of this podcast. But um, the good news is I think we're all on secure internet connections now. Uh, so guys, uh, who's here? I'm here. I'm Phil. And what's me? I'm Kit. And I'm Graham. Um, Lillian could not be here today, unfortunately. Um, and the film we're talking about today is Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Um, Stuart Gordon, of course, passed away earlier in this week. I was really gutted by it because to me, he was one of those guys that's always been there. Like I, I first saw... Reanimator in high school on video, and it kind of was, it was totally different from any other zombie film I'd ever seen. Um, and then I watched From Beyond, I watched Edmund, I watched Dagon, I watched uh, what other films of his have I seen? Just uh, Dolls, um, oh, Castle Freak. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is one of uh, a film that he wrote and produced. Um, yeah, he, he's had a long and varied career. I mean, he started in theater. I moved into film. So I'm going to try and quickly get through some of the stuff we discussed. But um, do we need to discuss stuff we've seen 
since we last recorded because we've lost all of that now? Uh, I just kind of wanted to give a quick shout out to Alone in the Dark, not the Uwe Boll movie, but the slasher slash home invasion movie with uh, Jack Palance, Martin Landau, and Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Directed by Jack Shoulder. He later directed Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and The Hidden. Nice. Um, yeah. Now, Alone in the Dark, that's the one where, where all the, the, the old British guys play mental patients? Uh, well, Donald Pleasance runs... Well, Lando and um, Palance are mental patients. Um, Donald Pleasance runs the asylum. Ah, I see. Yeah. Cool. Um, Kit, have you watched anything interesting since we last recorded? Oh, we lost Kit again. Okay, well, he's not here. Um, so I'll talk about what I recorded um, or what I watched. So I watched uh, a bunch of things. I, I when Before the, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote social distancing kicked in, I actually watched Contagion, um, the Steven Soderbergh film, because a lot of people were talking about it. It's back in the zeitgeist, and I saw it when it first came out and liked it a lot. And I watched it this time, and it kind of is like a little unsettling for looking at what's to come. And I also watched um, the documentary Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson, which is about the, the B-movie filmmaker Al Adamson, who was active in the 60s and 70s and I believe the early 80s. He, um, he produced such stuff as uh, Dracula vs. Frankenstein. He also did, uh, I think, did he do Satan Sadist? Maybe. He was famous for, he did uh, Monster Agogo or Psycho Agogo. He was famous for also, like, if a film didn't work the first time, he would, like, re-edit it or shoot new scenes, change the title, and try and make it something else completely different. Um, he did a James Bond knockoff, which eventually evolved into a biker film somehow. Uh, nice. As for his Dracula vs. Frankenstein, that was the first time anyone had ever done it, and uh, it's probably, it's noteworthy for having the worst depiction of Dracula on screen, according to a lot of reviewers. And, uh... He came to a, a tragic end when he was murdered by his his live-in contractor who was doing some renovations on the house he was living in at the time. And his contractor actually buried his body um, in cement uh, underneath where his jacuzzi used to be. Um, so it's a, That's not going to work. Yeah, it was a grisly, grisly end to his life. But um, it's a great documentary. Like I, It was really well done. It's streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Uh, and for free, I mean, you pay Amazon Prime every month, but you know, it's you don't have to pay anything extra for it to get that. And um, it made me really want to check out his films because I realized I don't think I've actually ever seen an entire Al Adamson film because I was just always scared away by people saying like he's a Lester Corman, you're going to get a lot of boring stuff. But this documentary showed that there's probably a lot of gems out there. Severin Films is releasing a, I think, 33 film or 35 film box set of all of his work. Um, so that's exciting. Um, and we'll be seeing, you know, I think that was supposed to come out, uh, in about a month from now, but unfortunately that won't be happening anytime soon, um, due to this whole pandemic situation that we're going through. But I also watched, what was the other thing that I watched that I wanted to talk about? Let me just open up my book here. Um, I also watched the film Satanic Panic, uh, which is Chelsea Stardust film that came out last year theatrically and it uh, is now streaming on Shutter. it's also on VOD and I believe a physical release was scheduled to come out I think this week 
but I don't know what's going to be happening with it now. It's a really fun horror comedy, kind of in the vein of Reanimator, because you think it's just going to be one type of film, but then it just goes to a whole nother level. And uh, it's 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 really good, really funny. I highly recommend it to, to anyone. It probably would have been on my best of for 2019 if I had seen it in 2019. So just okay. just checking in. Kit, are you back with us? I saw it for like five seconds. So, Phil, um, this was your first time seeing Reanimator. You were saying that Stuart Gordon's a bit of a blind spot uh, for you? Yeah, big blind spot. Um, yeah, I've never seen Reanimator the B- until today. Um, never seen From Beyond or Dolls or any of those or Fortress. But, yeah, um, Reanimator, that was quite a blast yeah in a lot of ways it was what i expected but i it wasn't uh but it was more comedic than i expected sort of mm-hmm. yeah yeah i kind of feel that goes with Stuart gordon's whole like philosophy on things like i'm trying to think like has he ever done just a true horror movie and maybe dolls is is the closest because even from beyond mm-hmm. has like it's more gross than scary kid are you back with us now yeah. he was there for a while and then he disappeared again mm-hmm. Um, Re- Reanimator is his first feature film, which is crazy because it's so well made for a first feature film, and they oh, only totally. they only had three weeks to shoot it in. So that's that's it's just amazing to me that 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 worked. Um, and it was very low budget. I mean, the producer Brian Usna put in all of his own money and even took out personal loans to finance it. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about him later on. Um, and okay, I'm going to stop and save and not delete this this time herbert west is at the top of his class in medical school how can you teach such dribble these people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance what are he's you? brilliant but a little weird i've broken the six to twelve minute barrier i've conquered brain death his experiments have always been unorthodox it was dead but lately, they're getting out of hand. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life, and not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? scare you to pieces all right well we're recording again so we just got to the point where i was taught we were talking about how like the film it's crazy that it was made in three weeks um but before we get into like the, the actual plot of the film do you guys want to hear some of the backstory behind it 
Yes. I mean, I sure do. Okay. So I think our listeners would like to hear that. Yeah. So Stuart Gordon um, and his wife Carolyn began their career uh, as in theater. So he was a theater director. Um, so they early on did a production of Peter Pan in the town where they lived. And they got hit with obscenity charges, so they, I don't know how or why with a production of Peter Pan. It was definitely not a children's production. But then they moved to Chicago, and they formed the Organic Theater Company. Which Just an all-nude Peter Pan. Pro- it probably was, because the, <laughs> the nickname for the Organic Theater Company was the Naked Covered in Blood Theater Company. Um, so oh, wow. It kind of tells you what they did. Um but he had a very dirt, like clear ethos when it came to theater. He wanted to do theater that everyone could afford to see. And he also wanted to be able to pay the cast and crew a livable wage. So it wasn't like you were working your regular job for eight hours a day and then you came and worked on a play for five hours at night. Like he wanted, if you were going to be in this play, that this should, should pay your, your living wage. So I think initially they were offering their cast and crew members $55 a week, which in 1968... Wasn't a lot of money, but if you... Oh, we're getting some feedback. It's the French one. Oh, sorry, it's the uh, the French... Um, I don't know, they're just sending an alert. They're sending alerts over text message about COVID. Oh, okay, you're oh. it now? Yeah, I just got... Well, I got the French version now. Now I'm getting the English version. There it is. <laughs> I got that like two hours ago. So did I. I'm just getting another one now for some reason. Okay. Uh- Oh, maybe it's going to be every hour on the hour. Um, Probably. So anyways, um, so he had a, yeah, so he basically said, like, you know, if a few members of the theater troupe lived together, they could actually, like, you know, rent a place and live and eat and work off of the play they were doing. He thought it's like you should be able to to live off of the, the artistic work that you're doing. Um, and he, he was very critical when Hamilton had its, and still has its crazy run on Broadway, I think he was saying, like, you know, tickets for $500 or, or thousands of dollars. He considered it obscene and said everyone involved should be should be ashamed of it because... Yes. Because theater should be... Art shouldn't be, like... You know, you should pay for what you're, 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 you're going to see, but you shouldn't... You know, it shouldn't be uh, just an elitist, like, um, only for the rich... Um, yeah, if you're, just, if you're just making art for the elites, then you're probably not making very good art. Uh, exactly, um, but he uh, he always compared his the organic theater company to be more like a rock and roll band where it was like they would have fun, it would be ramshackle, but they would they would uh, get it done. There's like a whole bunch on the um, limited edition Blu-ray of Reanimator that Arrow Video put out, which is a wonderful like to me it beats any Criterion release ever made. Like there are full length documentaries on the making of Reanimator. There's full length documentaries on the um, HP Lovecraft in cinema. Uh, there's so many audio commentaries. There's two different versions of the film. It's it's. I highly endorse it. Although apparently now it's either out of print or I was just checking on Amazon to see like what the the going cost of it now is. And I believe due to all the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic situation that we're in, uh, there they have very limited shipping. So they're I don't think they're actually offering it right now to to be shipped. So it's unfortunate, but. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for when you know this eventually comes to an end, and hopefully, will it'll be back in print and back and available for people to watch. It's also streaming right now on Shutter, uh, which is how I saw the same way I saw Satanic Panic last week, um, which is how I believe you guys saw it. Although, Kit, you saw the 105 minute version that you watched on a Blu-ray. 
Yes, yes. Yeah, and Phil, you saw the 86 minute, which is the original unrated uh, theatrical version. That's the one that's screwed on Shutter. I think it was like either 85 or 86. Yeah, it's probably like 85 point something. Um, yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. Credits included. So. But there's there's three versions, right, Graham? Yeah, there's the 85 or 86 minute original unrated theatrical cut. And we'll get into a little bit more about why they released it unrated in theaters. And then there's a 95 minute uh, R-rated home video version, which was made in order for the film to be like released into Blockbuster. And then there I like how the uh, like the uh, sort of cut for families version is actually somehow longer, like by ten minutes. Well, it's because they so like certain scenes. Because I was trying to like I watched a little bit of the uh, of the unrated version uh, earlier today just to sort of see what the difference is because it's been so long since I've seen the two, and uh, I think they just like elongated scenes. And so certain scenes where like there were extra conversations, it was just like, well, we can't just let this conversation drop. We have to show the whole conversation to its end. Whereas before they had a natural ending point. Um, one such scene that got cut, which. Phil, you didn't see it established how Dr. Hill uh, is actually able to hypnotize people. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he he has the power of hypnosis, um, which is largely cut out of the, which is, I think, entirely cut out of the... Um, the Was that the dinner conversation with the dean? Yeah, the dinner conversation, they show the beginning of it in the 85-minute version, and but they don't show the end where it's revealed that um, Dr. Hill has the ability to hypnotize people. Which is why yeah, he, it gets quite uh, weird. Yeah, I think they did a really good job of establishing though what he was doing and how he was doing it. Um, I wonder if um, this is just coming to me now. I wonder if um, is he a character in uh, the H.P. Lovecraft book? Do you know? Has anybody read it? I've attempted to read it. It's very dry and very like Lovecraft was not known for his his literary skill. He was known more for his concepts and his and his ideas. Um, well, there, there is, there's a similar character in there, but there, but it's not a one-to-one Doctor Hill. Like the Doctor Hill in, or there, the character in Reanimator, the, um, the, the book, and we'll talk a bit about Reanimator the book as well uh, as we get into it. Is also decapitated, and he also brings a head back to life, but it's not the same head. So, your Alan Poe. Okay, you're gone. You're leaving. Am I gone? Hello, am I here? Yeah, we can hear you. Hello. We can hear you again. You you come and go. Okay, good. Uh, as I as I tend to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an Edgar Allan Poe story. Yes. Called the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, um, and that's about basically um, trying to resuscitate uh, the dead right after they've died, try to prevent brain death, and it involves. It's very heavy into the mesmerism. Ooh. It's all like this mesmerist who uh, is able to achieve this. So I'm, I'm, I guess they pull from different sources. Poe was definitely a bit of an influence upon um, Lovecraft because I mean they were a hundred years apart. And uh, or did Lovecraft hate Poe? I can't remember. He hated a lot of stuff. He hated women. He hated minorities. He hated the Jews. Um, he... Well, even even Stuart Gordon might have pulled from uh, from that story as well. Well, Stuart Gordon. The one thing I wanted to say that he he really brought to to 80s and 90s cinema was uh, literature because he always liked to pull from Edgar Allan like from H.P. Lovecraft or Edgar Allan Poe like he adapted I think it's like four movies from Edgar Allan Poe story like or from um, 
from H.P. Lovecraft movie or stories. So, like, he did Reanimator. From Beyond was another H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. Although, the interesting thing about From Beyond is that the entire adaptation of the short story happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie, and then the rest is just original content. Um, he also did an adaptation of The Shadow Over Innismouth called Dagon, which actually takes the title from another H.P. Lovecraft short story called Dagon, but has nothing to do with it. Um, yeah. oh, I mean, he took elements from the short story of Dagon and like applied it to The Shadow Over Innismouth in order to get the film Dagon. And like also The Shadow Over Innismouth was because there's a weird quasi-legality to H.P. Lovecraft's works. So there's a debate over to, like, are they actually in public domain? Are they not? Um, so it's all very tangled up legally. So, like, certain ones are for sure in public domain. Anything made before 1923... Uh, anything uh, up to 1923 is considered public domain. Anything after 1923, including The Call of Cthulhu and in the mountains of, at the Mountains of Madness, is... It's debatable as to whether or not it is in public domain or not. So... Mm -hmm. That's why there you can see H.P. Lovecraft's blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the most adapt, uh, adapted H.P. Lovecraft stories is actually The Color Out of Space, which was adapted last year by Richard Stanley, uh, starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I've heard that was uh, interesting. Yeah, I saw it at TIFF. It's, 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 it's wacky. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's interesting how Lovecraft was not a humorous guy or humorous writer, Yet the best adaptations of his work, like insert humor. So sure. I think I think that's the only way to really get away with it because like I've seen some short films that are like straight laced adaptations of his work, and they just don't work seriously. Like you need to be able to look into this like obscene, absurd concept and, and kind of chuckle at it a little bit in order to to really accept it. You gotta wink at the audience a little and be like, "Yeah, we know this is." ridiculous mm -hmm. well and I do want to point out though that all the actors have said like they played they un understood that if we play our roles too jokey or too like wink wink nudge nudge the humor would probably die on screen and so they just played it <laughs> serious and actually halfway through filming they were kind of concerned like oh are we playing this too serious and then when they saw the at the cast and crew screening they were like oh thank god it turned out way funnier than we actually thought it was going to be um and um, but but yeah, the the original H.P. Lovecraft story was told in six parts. Um, Lovecraft himself really didn't like it. He he considered it a, a sellout work because he only wrote it for the money. He was paid five dollars per installment, um, and they were all released in the movie Home or not in the movie, but in the uh, the literary magazine Homebrew, which is primarily known for being a uh, a comedic magazine which Lovecraft was definitely not. And so the six parts were From the Dark, The Plague Daemon, that's Daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, Six Shots by Moonlight, The Scream of the Dead, The Horror from the Shadows, The Tomb of Legions, and actually, yeah, and The Tomb of Legions is the last one. And it kind of follows Herbert West from like his early experiments with um, reanimation up through the Spanish influenza and World War One. And eventually ending, and it's it's interesting because the 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 book is probably the first time that zombies as reanimated corpses are featured in any way, shape, or form. Because it wasn't until 
uh, Night of the Living Dead that, you know, people started calling reanimated corpses zombies. The closest, I mean, yeah. there, there was the concept of the ghoul. Um, and also in the book, Herbert West Reanimator, several other reanimated people practiced cannibalism. So, uh, so like, he, he was ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. It's just interesting that, like, he hated that work. Um, but yeah, Kit, so this being your first time seeing reanimator what did you what's your initial impression uh i mean i i dug it i thought it was fun i gotta be honest yeah it's it's i love this movie i watching it again it it makes me again it just makes me sad that that Stuart gordon has left us um he uh he definitely hit upon something special because like he combined like him and his writers on the film there are three writers uh and they all kind of brought a different attitude to it because so much of what's in the film reanimator is totally different from what's in the book reanimator. Like there's no, the character that Bruce Abbott plays, Dan, the roommate of, of Herbert West doesn't exist. There's just an unnamed narrator who says he was a friend of Herbert West at one point, the character of Megan played by Barbara Crampton. She's not in the book at all. Like in, uh, you know, HP Lovecraft is well known for being a bigot and a misogynist. And he rarely, if ever put women in his in his works but yes yeah, so the three the three writers on the film are dennis paoli william j nor well, so william j norris was the first writer to take a crack at it and he wrote it as six half hour installments which they then adapted into the feature length screenplay he left and Stuart gordon brought on dennis paoli to do a polish or to to really form it all together and he was a collaborator with Stuart gordon on the play bleacher bums and uh, Reanimator the Musical, which came out a few years ago in Los Angeles, that Stuart Gordon also directed the stage play adaptation of the film. Um, it would make a good musical. I could see that. Yeah. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. And Richard... Dancing Bell Zombies? Yeah, like, so there's... Um, I kind of want to get the soundtrack and see what that's like. Uh, just, be <laughs> just because, like, I... So on the Arrow Blu-ray release, the... Um, two lead actors from the stage the musical stage play do a commentary track with Stuart Gordon on the original reanimator so Graham Skipper plays Herbert West reanimator in the stage play and uh, he's uh, an actor that I've been following for a while he kind of came out of the hole he was involved in Joe uh, Bigos's first film Almost Human he was in All the Creatures Are Stirring he was also in uh, what's that film why am I drawing a blank on it uh, Beyond the Gates, which also starred Barbara Crampton, bringing it all back to Reanimator, Re um, and he himself directed a really good indie film called Sequence Break from two years ago. But yeah, like uh, it's it's interesting how this has had a life of its own. There actually is a feature length, another feature length Herbert West Reanimator film uh, from one is from Spain and one is from Italy. There's two of them, and both of them play it straight, and none of them have had remotely the impact that this film had. Granted, they both came afterwards. And I feel that like you really like they captured lightning in a bottle with uh, with Reanimator here. Oh sure. Sorry guys, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I I really like this movie and it meant a lot to me like in my formative years and university years. And I can definitely say a few dates were ruined by showing this movie. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, continuing on talking about Stuart Gordon and, like, the It wasn't meant to be, Graham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it went better than the date that I showed the girl Cannibal Holocaust on. Um, oh, my wow. good gosh. You went there. Just that, we, 
Weeding out the normies, eh, Graham? It was her choice, not mine. Um, <laughs> okay. and I, was, I was like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, yeah, this seems... I'm like... Because she's like, what movie really uh, like mortified you? And I'm like, uh, this movie, Cannibal Holocaust. And I, against my better judgment, was like, well, maybe this will get interesting. No. No, it did not. Every um, week gets interesting, just not in the desired way. Yeah. Um... So anyways, uh, in Chicago with the Organic Theater, Stuart Gordon, uh, I'll talk a little bit about his, his early days in theater. He, um, there was a young playwright that kept bugging him to like stage some of his work. Uh, but you know, uh, Gordon had to keep telling him like, you need to have a plot in your place. It just can't be a guy wakes up, puts his socks on and goes to work. Um, and so the writer kept on rewriting and rewriting and writing and rewriting this play called Sexual Perversity in Chicago. That writer's name was David Mamet. David Mamet met Joe Montaigne at the Organic Theater Company, which is, he of course is best known for his role as Fat Tony on The Simpsons. And uh, now he's on, been on Criminal Minds for like a thousand years at this point. Another actor that, that Stuart Gordon kind of discovered in Chicago was Dennis Franz. A thousand at least, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Dennis Franz is best known for being the star of NYPD Blue. He was also in Psycho 2, um, and he's been in... Zippowitz. Uh, yeah, Zippowitz. That's him. Many of the Palma movie. Yes, that's true, too. He was in many, many... Uh, he was in Blowout as the um, the photographer, right, that takes the photos of the murder that happens, I believe? Yeah. And he's the uh, asshole, blowhard, uh, airport cop in Die Hard 2. Oh, right. Who butts heads with Bruce Willis. Throughout yeah. the whole movie. So the, yeah. the genesis for doing Reanimator came from Stuart Gordon lamenting that there have been so many films about Dracula and vampires, but there's been so few about Frankenstein or Frankenstein-type stories about you know men trying to create life. And I will emphasize men, not humans, because um, he has a very interesting take on Frankenstein and Reanimator and any story in that ilk, which is that any of those stories is basically a masturbatory story because it's about men trying to create life without women and how right yeah that makes sense the whole idea of trying to create life without it coming from a how do i put this like not not and he wasn't really making a content uh, a comment on test tube babies or artificial insemination or anything like that at the time but it had more to do with just like the idea of men thinking that oh we can just figure a way around this problem of needing another person to create life with um and how it how it could you know come back at them, and you can see that definitely between the, the relationship of the character of Dan and Herbert West, and also Dan's relationship with Megan, his girlfriend. Um, so initially, um, Stuart Gordon had actually never read, even though he read a lot of Lovecraft's work. Herbert West Reanimator was kind of forgotten at the time because it was released as that six part stories in the liter literary magazine, um, and the only copy that uh, Stuart Gordon could find was in the main branch of the Chicago Public Library so he read it and decided to adapt it as a six part television series like we were discussing earlier and each episode was going to be half an hour long but no one really wanted to do it um, and so then they were going to make an hour long episode, six episode part again no one wanted to do it, it's like you got to do this as a horror film and so this was great because Stuart Gordon uh, anytime they would do a successful play at the Organic Theatre Company he would want to, like, basically, like, casting agents would be there, and they'd take the good actors away and put them in movies. So he was like, we have so many good, talented people here. Let's make a film. Let's have Reanimator be the first film that the Organic Theater Company produces. 
However, the board of the Organic Theater Company hated the idea of doing a horror movie. Like, again, as always, horror is always kind of seen as this second-class, third-class, red-headed stepchild that nobody wants to be yep. involved with. Um, but the thing is, because Stuart Gordon was doing it, you knew you weren't going to get a cardboard uh, piece of drivel with Reanimator. It was going to be something much, much more. So he left Chicago and had to go to Los Angeles to get the film made, and that's where he met Brian Usna. And Brian Usna gets a big amount of credit in getting Reanimator made. He put all of his own money into it, took out personal loans to finance the production. Like basically, if it wasn't successful, if it didn't find distribution, he would have been like financially ruined forever from this. Uh, the total budget was around a million dollars, which is very, very low considering all the special effects and locations and sets they had to do. And they actually filmed primarily on sets in a studio, so they had to build all the sets, they had to do everything like that. Um, There's only about like four or five locations though, right? That's true, but when you have to build everything... For yeah, fair enough. But And also, each set had to be destroyable too. So they had to... And to achieve a lot of the effects, they had to have holes in walls and, and tables and stuff and hide people. So... Well, not to... Uh... Not to criticize the movie, but I, I did notice um, uh, Dr. Hill there. He has this uh, this weird office that has a one-way mirror that looks out onto a padded room. Yeah. And then uh, at one point, like, uh, there's somebody in the padded room that they're trying to deal with, and somebody, I guess, bumps the wall, and it clearly wobbles quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. That's fine. It happens in a lot of movies. <laughs> that happens in a lot of movies. There's so many times where, like, you'll see, like, you know, the, the cement concrete walls of a dungeon shake um yeah exactly um yeah I thought that that was intentional <laughs> ah maybe um but Brian Houston has gone on to basically become the keeper of the series he was involved like uh, he produced and directed 1990's Bride of Reanimator he also directed the uh long awaited sequel 2003's Beyond Reanimator um, and around 2005, 2006, him and Stuart Gordon were going to tr were trying to do a fourth Reanimator movie that Stuart Gordon would come back to do called House of Reanimator, where Jeff, like, where Herbert West is called, he's in prison, but he's released to come to the White House to reanimate Dick Cheney, who has died of a heart attack. Unfortunately, it didn't get made, and it, now with Gordon's passing, I don't believe it ever will. I mean, it could have worked really well under Trump yeah. with, like, you know, Trump's dead. But, yeah, and Brian Houston went on to have had a lengthy career. He directed Society. He directed Return of the Living Dead 3. He directed Silent Night, Deadly Night, I think, 4. Um, he's done so much stuff, uh, as did Stuart Gordon. Um, so should we just get into the, uh, the start of the film? Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay, so the opening scene set in Switzerland was actually shot after the film had been finished and edited because before it just literally started with uh, Dan, the character of Dan Kane, trying to, to save the woman dying in the ER that he was working in. And right, right. they wanted to have a scene to establish that the kind of craziness you're going to see later on. So because if you, if you, from the first moment we meet Herbert West, if you didn't have that opening scene to the point where he resurrects the cat, it's like a good solid 30 minutes, 45 minutes there. So they wanted, yeah, yeah. wanted to show people, like, this is going to get nuts. Like, so they had that great effect with the guy's eyes exploding out of his head. Yes, Dr. Gruber. Doc Hans Gruber. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. I think somebody watched this film. Um, 
And so the interesting thing about that is that because it was shot after the fact, the effects in that scene, the makeup effects, were done by John Carl uh, Bueller, who we've discussed before on the Bueller, podcast. Bueller, yeah, he 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 passed away last year or the year before. He's a really well-known special effects makeup artist. Like he did the effects for Trancers, Ghoulies, From Beyond, Stuart Gordon's next film, Nightmare on Elm Street Four and many, many more. He also directed the films Troll, not Troll 2, but Troll 1, Cellar Dweller, Friday the 13th. The good troll. Yeah, the good troll. I mean, they're both good, but just in different ways. Uh, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. He also directed Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College, Watchers Reborn. (laughs) I didn't know that the Ghoulies went to college. Of course they did. The Ghoulies had to go to college. (laughs) Did they even go to high school? I don't think they went to high school. They just went straight to college. Okay. Ghoulies, the college years. They're mature yeah. students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then from that opening scene, so basically the opening scene is a bunch of people at uh, this uh, uh, medical school in Zurich are like walking down the hall to try and get to Stuart West. He's locked himself in the, in the room with the corpse of his beloved professor, Dr. Hans Gruber slash terrorist, um, who, um, who's, who died. We learn later on that he locked himself in the room with him for eight hours while he was trying to bring him back to life. And they come inside and see that uh, Dr. Gruber is not... Not doing well. Not doing well, no. He is thrashing around. He is, you know, freaking out. And uh, eventually (laughs) the pressure gets to his eyes. His eyes explode out of his head and then he drops dead. And the uh, one of the women, the... um, I guess the uh, secretary or the executive assistant of the university says, you killed him. And then this is the first great Herbert West line of the entire film. No, I gave him life. I love that line. Uh, and then we go right into our amazing opening credit sequence, which I love. And Yeah, I love the design of this credit sequence. Solid, solid credit opening sequence. Yeah, it um, it's fantastic. We're also introduced to... Richard Band's amazing score. Um, Richard Band, I yeah, believe well, they use a lot of they use a lot of um, basically like the Psycho soundtrack. There's, there's elements of that kind of mixed in it. Well, that's that's the thing. Like so, Richard Band, like basically, um, what happened was Stuart Gordon said he wanted to do like a. Uh, we should also point out that Richard Band is the brother of Charles Band, who was the distributor of the film with his um, his. Uh, Empire Pictures distribution company, but um, Stuart Gordon told Richard Band like, "Hey, I would really like to do like a like a Bernard Herrmann type of score," and so Richard Band basically did a giant homage to Psycho, where it's different enough, and the score is actually I I really like it because it's so close at times though, it's so close at times, but it also perfectly fits the movie in a way that's totally different than it it fits Psycho like that's. What I think is so interesting about it is because you kind of hear it's like, oh, this is like Psycho, but the way that it's played in Psycho versus the way it's played in Reanimator it is is a totally different feel. Like in Reanimator, it's more of a comedic spin on it, whereas in Psycho, it's meant to be more serious and dramatic. The uh, the Psycho sample is used in the Busta Rhymes song "Give Me Some More," um, <laughs> and that sample was definitely recreated in the uh, Reanimator soundtrack. I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or did Buster Williams get it from uh, Reanimator? I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't know now. Mm. Yeah. Makes you think. 
mm-hmm. does. So, um, anyway, yeah, we come out of the credits, and where do we go from there, Kit? Uh, well, we're uh, where where you were staying. We're uh, with uh, Daniel Kane, a young med student who's trying to bring back a woman. Uh, he's he's pounding on her chest, um, like you know, doing the uh, the CPR type thing. And uh, the the head nurse there, the head doctor, rather I should say, she's got the um, uh, what, what do you call them? The ECG things. The the old the, I, I the shock panels or whatever. They they're the thing that you they the shock panels. Yeah, yeah they're famously the used in in every single uh, medical drama. Shock paddles. Mm-hmm. Um, they try those. Just brain death. There's nothing they can do. Flatline. And she's like, I admire your passion, but you gotta know not when to when to not waste time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he has to. She's like, bring him to bring her to the morgue. And it's here when when you realize that man, uh, they're pretty, you know, on the nudity front. Like this corpse is naked as it would be. Um, and it's just like, yeah, that's that's what a corpse would look like. Yeah, they 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 very like. There's a lot of discussion in uh, in the documentary and making the film about how the the climax featured basically like. A bunch of nude zombies and how they were like okay yeah. just don't show any wang and how this Yo, there's is, zombie junk all over the I, place i know <laughs> well especially well now that it's been remastered in hd we see it but like at the time the cinematographer like almost had a nervous breakdown he's like no matter where i go point the camera i just see it like i can't get around it <laughs> um, and uh and it was just like, and all the actors were like, we have no idea where Stuart Gordon found these six people who would just be like, you know, naked for essentially the entire movie or for their entire role. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's very much Viggo Mortensen in uh, Eastern Promises. Yeah. But we should also yeah. point out that like, uh, there's a whole range of body types in this movie that are, that are. Un- oh yeah. Yeah. Like the corpse the, that we start off with. She's a, she's a bigger woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that. Um, and he has to. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I think that goes back to Stuart Gordon's 60s theater, like, background of, like, you know, there nothing should be hidden or covered up. I, li- I like it, sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 refreshing because it's not, like, it's not like it's a supermodel lying on the slab. Um, it's not there to titillate. It's just there because that's, they, they wanted with the medical stuff, they wanted to be as accurate as possible. And even the special effects guys, when they were talking about when Dr. Hill demonstrates how to cut out a corpse's brain um it's actually medically accurate to how, like they would, how they would do it well he he actually famously describes it he's like peeling a head as much like peeling a large orange <laughs> yeah <laughs> so then uh, when he's wheeling down the corpse to to the morgue we meet our security guard friend and this is where well, i love this guy yeah the, the guy who decides when everything when the poop hits the fan just to run away yeah yeah, but he's just man. He's he's probably an underpaid security guard. He just wants to sit there reading his boudoir magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which he's he's I see him. He's reading in one scene at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then he says here. He says, "I don't know why they lock doors around here. Ain't nobody want in, and ain't nobody getting out." And that's like a it's a funny little line because you're like, "Oh, I bet people will want out of there." Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody has a good laugh about it. Mm-hmm. And this is where we meet um, Stuart Gordon, or not Stuart Gordon. This is where we, where Dan came. This is where we meet Dean Leslie, Doctor Hill, and uh, what you call it, and Herbert West and Dan Kane meet for the first time. And right away, I just yeah. love the tenacity of Herbert West, the student of this doctor, telling him to his face, "Your work sucks," and you clearly ripped off this yeah. other guy. 
Like Dr. I, Dr. Gruber. Yes, Dr. Gruber. And I was at this point where I was like, man, I identify a little too much with Herbert West in this movie. Yeah, it's just the, such a great scene because he's just like, your work is sloppy and it's like in certain circles it's considered plagiarism. But it's like he just right to his face considers him to be lazy and your whole like idea of the 12 minute like brain death. And he was like six to 12 minutes. I don't know why that's such a point of, of like contention. It's six to 12 minutes, not just 12 minutes. Um, and then where do we go from there, Phil? Yeah, like during this lecture, like Herbert West is just breaking pencils all over the place, and uh, Doctor. I love that like, passive. Yeah, Doctor Hill. Like, yeah, it's like hmm, maybe you should switch to a pen. <laughs> <laughs> I love Stuart Gordon. Like, I love how Herbert West breaks a pencil. Be like when he says like, and then death, snap, and he's clearly just snap. right in the middle of this class. Like Doctor Hill even says like. It will be a pleasure to fail you. And it's like, my God. Herbert West just has all the swagger in the world to walk into this place and poop all over this guy's like lecture in class. Oh, yeah. Dr. Hill, Dr. Hill, by the way, is, is newly uh, acclaimed because he's uh, created a new laser drill, which is going to revolutionize um, brain surgery or something like that. Uh, we should also point out that Dr. Hill is played by David Gale and who sadly passed away not too long after this film. Like, So this film came out in 1985. He passed away in 1991, um, but this film actually his career was kind of winding down at the time, and Reanimator like kind of saved his career, and he even told Stuart Gordon like, you know, I hate to use this pun, but Reanimator reanimated my career, and so oh he, God. he even appears. In, he's actually also the main antagonist in Reanimator and uh, Bride of Reanimator from 1990. Have either of you guys seen wow, Bride of Reanimator? Have either of you seen... Was that a swan song? Uh, it was his... I think it was like his second last role. Okay. Um, but yeah, when you guys watch Bride of Reanimator, you'll be amazed at how he comes back. It's, it's pretty amazing. He's a, he's a pretty good, like, creepy kind of mix of, like, John Kerry and, uh, like, late stage James Woods. Just <laughs> got a very, very creepy look to him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and he, he really went for it in that role. Um, so yeah, so where are we there? Where are we after that? So like, we're after that, he says, uh, is this when Barbara, we meet, um, Meg for the first time? Well, yeah, Dan puts up a notice that he needs a roommate, mm -hmm. and then, uh, yeah. yeah, Barbara. Barbara Crampton is Or the Meg, rather. Yeah, Meg, who is the Dean's daughter. Uh, so Meg Halsey. Yeah. Um, she, uh, you know, she kissed them, and they start making out, and then, I don't know if this is in the, uh, the 85-minute version, but then we get a bedroom scene after that. Oh, it's in there. <laughs> oh, okay. The funny thing about this bedroom scene yeah. is, well, whatever. I mean, they, they do their uh, lovey-dovey stuff, but the uh, the cat Rufus is introduced in this scene. And but the, the way he's introduced is he's clearly just getting thrown on the bed by some PA standing off screen. <laughs> some, <laughs> totally. Just like, here, throw the cat. I don't know if it would be the PA's job for the cat on the bed, but this cat is not coming onto the bed naturally. <laughs> no, he's being yes. thrown from off screen. Um, <laughs> so, they, so at the end of the credits, they say that no animal was harmed making this movie, but the PA was probably harmed during the making of this the movie. Cat probably scratched <laughs> the hell out of it. Um, So was it at this moment, Kit, that you were concerned about the well-being of Rufus? Was that when you started messaging me, like nothing bad better happen to Rufus the cat? Oh no, that was a, a little later when, um, when Meg can't find, find Rufus yeah. and she starts calling for him. Um, so it's at this point that we learn that Meg is concerned about, like, if her basically like once uh dan gets his medical degree 
or becomes a doctor, then she'll marry him because she doesn't want any undue influence, like anything, any, their relationship at all to hurt his prospects as a, as a doctor. She's, she's not enrolled at the medical school herself. She's just kind of around. Uh, no, she's a student. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I wasn't yeah. sure. No, no, she's a student cause they do study together. I don't know what she's oh, studying Oh, that's right. That's do. right. Yeah. Um, no, she, she's a student at the medical school. She might be nursing or she might be in, in radiology or some, some other, uh, discipline other than brain surgery or general practitioners, as it were. Um, and then as she's about to leave and her and Dan are goofing around, they open up the door and Dr. Herbert West is standing, or Herbert West is standing right there holding the, um, the room for rent. And this is where he sees the basement in the house and he realizes, yes, this will work. And Megan right away gets a bad vibe from Herbert West being like, you shouldn't let him live here. But Dan's like, ah, he's a fellow student and he's got money. <laughs> so what's the matter? Well, Dan with wants her to move in, but she won't do it yet. She's yeah. Again, she doesn't want to like cause any, cause like, you know, being the Dean's daughter, like, Conflict. yeah, the Dean could like very much cause some grief for, um, for Dan Kane. Um, and then from there, where do we go? We uh, see Dr. Hill having dinner with, um, whatchamacallit, with um, with Dean, what's his name again, Halsey? I should know this. I've Dean, seen this movie, Dean Halsey. Yeah. I've seen Dean this movie Halsey. a billion times. Um, so they're having dinner, and now in the 86-minute in the cut, I believe um, Dan comes in, they say their goodbyes, and they leave, and that's the end of the scene, right, Phil? Yeah, that is. Whereas in the 105-minute version, this is where we learn that uh, Dr. Hill has hypnotizing powers. And he hypnotizes... And also that he's got, like, major creep vibes regarding the Dean's daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah he definitely is, <laughs> is yeah, in a bad way. Um, and so at this point, we see him hypnotizing the Dean, and this explains why when Barbara goes to her father later on he's very anti-dan for no reason although i can't remember yeah. is is that in the 86 minute version when she goes to the dean and he's just very much like i don't like this dan kane guy blah 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 is that there phil uh no it, the conflict is established later when uh dean halsey talks to uh kane about uh backing off and uh like uh, issuing an apology in writing or he'll like suspend um have his uh, loan suspended and yeah that's 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 all there in, in this version but it's like it kind of does it come mm -hmm. kind of come out of nowhere or is it dr hill like influencing him it's it kind of comes out of nowhere but you but it is established that this is like a potential risk that uh dean halsey will make kane's life hell for him yeah yeah, in the um, extended cut, of, mm -hmm. yeah, in the extended cut, I guess at the dinner scene, uh, what Hill puts into the dean's mind is that, um, well, Dan is now rooming with Herbert West. I think we've already had that um, the classroom scene where he's been breaking pencils. Yep, and he says uh, Herbert Herbert West is a he's a bad influence. He's going to uh, disease Dan's mind. Mm -hmm. I keep on wanting to say Dean Kane, which would be a mistake. I know. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Speaking of diseased minds, yeah. Yes. He's going to corrupt uh, young Dan Kane, and then he's going to be uh, terrible for your daughter, so you've got to you got to cut this shit out, is basically how he kind of mesmerizes or puts the seeds in his... In his brain. Kid, are you still with us? Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, 
so let's jump ahead to their studying that night and uh, Meg is still just creeped out about Herbert West and Dan is like oh he you know never comes out of his room he's just you know he's just quiet he's like you know all geniuses they're just weird and, and loners and obsessed with work and Meg points out like where's Rufus like normally he's on top of us like bothering us nonstop. And yeah. Dan's like, oh, he's just out somewhere. So like, they look around, and she goes into Herbert West's room. Within uh, the bar fridge in Herbert West's room is, sadly, Rufus the cat, along with a vial of mysterious green liquid. Uh, this is like neon green liquid. Yeah. yeah. I actually love the uh, color of the reanimator juice. It's like this glowing radioactive kind of green goo <laughs> reanimator juice. <laughs> nice. Um <laughs> It actually was is the fluid from it's it actually literally glowed. It was the fluid from inside of a glow stick. So what they do is they crack Ooh. a glow stick, cut it open and pour it into the into the vials. And that's actually the first time okay. that glow stick fluid was ever used um in a film. Did they, did they re they must have used it in the um Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sequel Secret of the Ooze, no? Uh, I can't recall. Was that ooze like glowing green, or was it just green? Eh, possibly. From what I remember, it was. Yeah, it's been a while since. Yeah, I remember seen it. that as well. Mm-hmm. But then again, I think Gatorade has came a long way by that point. So. Oh, that's true. Although the thing is, the the reanimator juice actually does glow. So that's. Yeah. Um, the fascinating part of it. So then from there, um, so from there, there's a huge argument. Meg storms off, but. Again, another amazing line from Reanimator when he explains. I like, mean, uh, Herbert West, yeah, yeah. Because he comes in, he's like, "What are you doing in my room? Yeah, you're not allowed in here." Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. It's like, "What's Rufus doing in there?" And Meg is like, "You killed him! You killed him!" And he's like, "No, I know. I didn't want you to find it that way. Like, basically, like the cat had like knocked over tell the garbage. You. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna tell you when I got home. Knocked over the garbage, got its head stuck in a jar, and suffocated." And he didn't want it stinking up the place, so he put it in his fridge. Um, and he told him. Yes, and uh, then he says the line. Well, and like Dan is like, you know, you could have left a note. And Herbert West says, "What? Well, what kind of note was I supposed to leave, Dan? Cat dead. Details later." <laughs> Such a great line. Yeah. Um, and then Dan takes the the corpse of Rufus and leaves, and just as uh, Herbert West is about to shut the door. What does he say? Anyone remember know. that line? I can't remember. Garbage to garbage. Jeez, oh, harsh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, Herbert West is, uh, is, uh, he's, he's a cold as a cucumber. Or just cold Maybe as yeah. ice. Bit of a dick. Yeah. So then, Bar- like, Meg storms off and she spends the night at home. And then later on that night, they start, like, Dan oh, we hear up. a, uh, yeah, there's the sound of, like, an angry cat somewhere. Yeah, there's lots of thrashing happening about, like, things breaking in the basement and lots of shrieking and yelling. Mm-hmm. And so Dan, like, you know, hastily gets out of bed. He goes, he checks Herbert's room. No one's in there. And then he, like, realizes it's coming from the basement. And so he breaks the door of the basement because it's locked. He falls down the stairs to find... Yeah, he tumbles. He really tumbles down those stairs. Oh, Yeah. To find Herbert West is being attacked by some kind of creature on his back. It, it, it's fantastic that little black cat just like strapped to his back and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's great. And so eventually the cat gets knocked off his back. They like look it around and it's this horrific mangled 
black cat, and Dan eventually grabs it and throws it against the wall, which it hits with a thump and dies. It's neck broken, or back broken. And Herbert West kind of cracks a little joke here. He goes, like, look out! And Dan, like, looks. And then Herbert West kind of just laughs at the whole situation. Like, isn't this funny? And uh, this is when Herbert West explains the work he's doing and how he is trying to figure out how to successfully reanimate a person from the dead. So what happens next, guys? Well, uh, uh, well, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, so uh, Herbert West uses the, the aforementioned reanimator juice, injects <laughs> it into Rufus's uh, noggin. Mm-hmm. No, because Dan doesn't believe him. He, uh, Dan is yeah. all like, no, the cat wasn't dead before. You just, uh, you just put it to sleep or something like that. Yeah, and so... And, but then Herbert West proves him wrong, and he goes on this little spiel about the pain of birth. Right, so the cat starts to make these terrible sounds, and Dan says, "Why is it? Why is it making that sounds?" And Herbert responds, "Death is always, or sorry, birth is always painful." And so they they reanimate poor Rufus, and then they have to deanimate him again, of course. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. He's, Rufus is not much at this point. <laughs> sorry, could you just repeat that, Kit? We lost you for a second. Yeah. Rufus is not capable of doing much at this point. His body is pretty much broken. Yeah, exactly. But his head moves up rather uh, gorily. It's it's quite a it's quite something. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's at this point that um, oh yeah, because Meg sneaks up behind them and she's like, "What's going on?" And it turns out that Dan and uh, Herbert have been down in the basement all night, and it's now daytime. And so she came over because she was worried. And Dan is excited, like, he's reversed death. This is amazing. And Meg is like, you are out of your mind. This is crazy, and he's dangerous. And I'm going to the Dean. And this is when uh, I think we get that scene where the Dean now is, who was very pro-Dan to start the movie, is now very anti-Dan and threatens Yeah, he's to, very anti-Dan. And threatens to have him kicked out and never lose his scholarship. So where do we go from there, guys? And... Well, he also announces that Herbert West is a persona non grata on campus. Um, mm-hmm. He's out. He's out completely. Uh, and where do we go from here? Um, well, basically, um, this is when Herbert convinces Dan, "Hey, we're going to have to. The only way to prove that what we're doing works is if we get a human specimen." So Dan That's sneaks right, him yeah. into the morgue because the whole thing is like. They say if we find that any of uh, any of the school's property is being used for these terrible experiments, then you're, yes. you're both getting kicked out. Yeah. So that's the Sorry. Yes, yes. Okay, Phil, what did you just say? Because you guys talked over each other. Well, like, Herbert West is getting kicked out regardless, but uh, Kane is on the hook. So, like, if... Basically, like, if anything's being uh, taken stolen meddled with Kane is out yeah also oh I don't know if it was um, I, again uh, the 85 minute version but it does also established here that um, Herbert West takes the reanimator juice as a sort of I don't know a pick me up or a boost of some sort yeah he says he does it so that he won't hit, it, it rejuvenates his brain so that his brain doesn't need sleep yeah because he starts having Concentrating, and he gets a rather big headache, and he can't—he can't even control his own arms. So he has to run and get the reanimator juice. Yeah, so and then Dan helps him like inject it into his veins. 
So he's using it like a drug to keep him going. So basically, yeah. it's at this point we realize Herbert West has probably not slept in like a year, if not more. Um, and so they sneak them into the uh, into the morgue, and it's at this point where um, Barbara goes to like plead to her father for like just just give Dan a chance, you know, just let him know. But you know, Doctor Hill is still controlling her father through hypnosis. And he's like, no, like, I'm gonna, if he's here, I'm gonna find him and, and kick him out myself. And so while they're down in the morgue, they start going through bodies trying to find, uh... A good one, a good, yeah. Yeah, they, basically. There's they, a, they, they come yeah. across, yeah, one body that's been burned too much, another body that's started to rot, so it's been dead too long, another body that's, you know, it's got its head shot off with a shotgun blast. And then there's one that's a meatball, is that the term used? The meatball, yeah, that's what he tells the security guard. So they're, they're trying to find that Goldilocks body, you know? Yeah. And they think they find one. He's a guy who um, suffered heart failure. So they think there's no problems. Or but he was a young man. He was in his 20s. Yeah. <clears throat> now, the interesting thing about that um, that corpse is... Sorry, I'm just trying to look up my note where I have it written down here. He looks like a professional wrestler, is he? No, his name is Peter Kent. He's the first reanimated corpse. So he is best known for being Arnold Schwarzenegger's body double throughout the 1980s. Oh, wow. So, you know... So when we see... Schwarzenegger, like, some, like, Schwarzenegger from behind or, like, him flexing a muscle or off camera, that's that's that guy. So, like, when, um, when Schwarzenegger um, materializes in the Terminator all naked and stuff... Some of those shots are that guy? Possibly, although it might just be Schwarzenegger. Yeah, some of the shots are him. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so yes, he's a body double for Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, yeah, Peter Kent is his name. And he reacts poorly to being reanimated. Well, it takes them a while at first. They, mm -hmm. they, they can't get him reanimated, so they try more juice. He's like, well, maybe you need more. Yeah. And he pumps him full of it, uh, another dose of the serum. And then he wakes up and, yeah, immediately is uh, not happy about it. Mm -hmm. and so once that all happens so now they're like it's things are kind of the poop is hitting the fan again um, Dean Halsey is coming down to like give Dan a piece of his mind because they find out he's down in the morgue and uh, basically Dean Halsey is on the other side of a metal door the corpse decides to uh, attack the door like he knocks the door down flattens Dean Halsey open, yeah. kicks it open stomps on it breaks. like jumps on the door too he basically like breaks all of Dean Halsey's like nose and teeth out all at once and just starts yeah. destroying Dean Halsey in a fit of rage. Bites his fingers off, I think. Oh yeah, it's super gnarly yeah. when they bite the fingers off. I love that moment. Because <laughs> that's the moment when he bites the fingers off. People who haven't seen this movie before, that's the moment when they realize this movie is going places. Um, and uh, the only way they can stop this corpse is for Herbert West to take the bone saw and and I wanted to point out something so the bone saw in this movie it's never turned on like we hear the sound but it never rotates in any shots I noticed that this oh, time oh I didn't realize yeah well, I noticed that this time watching it because it's like the, the way a bone saw works is it, is it rotates like a like a you know a, a, a saw uh, but it doesn't actually do that they just turn on that's part of the suggestive power of cinema is like they make the sound happen and then you never see it actually being used <laughs> Um, so he but he doesn't go for the yeah he doesn't go for the brain which is what I thought he was going to go for no he goes, he goes uh, right through the lungs into the spinal like cavity ah mm -hmm. 
I don't think these zombies are like traditional zombies where the only way to kill them is to destroy the brain. As we learn later on when a disem... He uh, uh, a headless body starts walking around. Yeah. Um... And then, uh, so at this point, Dean Halsey has been killed, sadly. Barbara's still waiting outside, or sorry, Megan is still waiting outside. And they decide to, well, we can save him. Uh, so they strap him to a table, inject it's him with... It's the perfect opportunity. Mm -hmm. Fresh corpse, but he's brain damaged. Like, he's had his head battered in and all of his teeth broken out. And uh, when they reanimate him, it does not go well. Yeah, it pretty much never does go well when they reanimate something. No. Yeah, it's a constant struggle. Um, so where does it go from there, guys? Oh, well, Dean Halsey uh, has the superpowers of a reanimated corpse, and he lifts both of them up uh, with his hands, mm -hmm. uh, each by their neck. And this is when uh, Meg comes down, because the security guard, he's gone to, I don't know, have a pee or something like that. Yeah, he's just taking a break. <laughs> he's the only security guard. He took the boudoir with him. Yeah, he <laughs> Of course. Yeah. And she starts... Hey, Kit. Kit. Phil, you still there? I'm still here. Okay, so Phil, where do we go from there? So they're, they're still thrashing about, and... Uh, so then um, Megan shows up, right? Yeah, Megan comes in, and so... At the site of Hello. her... Oh, hey, her Kit, you're back. Yes, I'm back. Sorry, my internet uh, discom discombobulated. Kate. Sometimes. Okay, you're you're here and there, but uh, keep going, Phil, with your description of what happens. So Megan comes in and, and like discovers her father as a corpse. She discovers her father as a corpse, and like she's like yelling, "Daddy, daddy!" And like he responds, and she's under the false impression that like there's a bit of a life there, but. Uh, Peru West insists that no, he responds in a way like an animal responds to mm -hmm. like a dog. Yeah, he also somewhat seems ashamed here too, because he, he he goes and hides in the corner rather than attacks anyone else. Exactly. So the character Dean Halsey was portrayed by Robert Sampson, and he described um, the the way that he worked with Stuart Gordon on getting the the character post reanimated of like how to play it was that. He, Stuart Gordon and him decided that it's someone who is like basically like violently regained consciousness like when you're awakened by a sound that you don't recognize and you don't know where you are who cannot speak and can communicate but can still make sounds and, but realize but, but has the ability to realize that they have become a lesser deformed version of themselves so which is why when his zombie version reacts in shame when Megan first sees him in the morgue so hey. So at this point, um, the security card comes in and Dan faints or has a goes into shock, and Herbert West comes up with a cover story, which is so the cover story is I guess oh god, I, I the dean goes lying. the dean goes nuts. Yeah, he just goes nuts. Yeah. He lost his mind, mm -hmm. and they he have to believe it because he's alive. <laughs> Sorry, what happened there? You both talked over each other again. Phil, you go first. That the dean went nuts and he uh, killed somebody in the morgue. Yeah, was that what happens? Or no, they um, yeah, something like he he went and got a body from the morgue or something like that. And yeah, he was trying to steal a body from the from the morgue. And Dan and, and Herbert were like, "What are you doing?" And then he kind of like freaked out. They got angry and discovered them doing this. So now he 
they had to like stop him and he's like beating his head off a wall or something he's like lost his mind basically had a mental breakdown well so that's good enough for the authorities and and everybody else but of course meg doesn't quite buy the story she was just with her father um so she's uh she's feeling upset um trying to remember oh uh, they do take the the corpse this is where we get a very creepy scene with her and dr hill um where you know she's that's where you get the, the padded room like he's got this uh, office that looks into a padded room she's like what's wrong with them um and then he you get all these like a very chilling uh i insist you call me carl yeah to uh to meg <laughs> um yeah, I don't know what they've, uh, they decide kind of like, oh, we're just going to observe him. Uh, I'm going to, you need to give me, um, power of attorney so I can, I can work on, on him and try to help him. Basically what he says to her is he tries to hypnotize, he tries to fully hypnotize her, but it doesn't entirely work. Where like, he says like, you should think of me as someone you can depend on and cares about you. And it's very creepy. Um, and then he gets her to sign a release that he can do exploratory brain surgery on her father. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is code for lobotomizing him. Um, yeah, he's going to use his laser drill. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so after, like, Hilda's experiments on him and realizes, oh my god, he is technically dead. His neck is broken, his lungs have collapsed, his spinal cord has been compressed. There's no, like, no way for him to be up walking around. But I guess Herbert West was correct. He he survived. So, and this is where Doctor Hill goes into full villain mode. He's he's already been a villain, but now he's like, all right, I'm going to take over as the villain here. Mm-hmm. So then he goes to uh, he shows up at uh, Herbert West's uh, place and confronts him like, oh, uh, so uh, Dean Halsey, uh, why is his pulse irregular? I know why it's irregular and why his temperature's off is because you and I both know he is dead. It eventually escalates into a fisticuffs of sorts. Well, we should point out that he also, at this point, hypnotizes Herbert West to say, like, I'm going to take your work and call it mine, and you'll be my assistant, and they'll rename the Nobel Prize after me um, when I... Yes, yes. When I can reverse death. And then... Uh, Me is over at Meg's he basically kind of admits to her that your father is dead uh, I feel terrible about what's happened kind of stuff um, and then I think we cut back to uh, Herbert and uh, Dr. Hill um, who are going about and uh, he's he's assisting Dr. Hill but then all of a sudden I guess he's able to get his mind back or something mm-hmm. well basically Herbert West's because, ego uh, takes over when he's like this is my work not yours um, and he decapitates and, Dr. Um, Hill with a shovel with a shovel, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty gnarly death scene with uh, him just hitting him in the back of the head and then like just totally decapitating him with the shovel. Um, and then, of course, he has a brilliant yeah. idea. He's like, oh, I've never tried this out before. I'll try reanimating separate parts. Mm-hmm. So he puts Hill's head into a, a pan, although it's pretty funny because Hill's head won't stay up, so he takes like one of those old things you used to stick <laughs> notes on, like a, a note spike, and just jams his head down on top of it. <laughs> yeah. And then he decides so they're like, using boards when I used to like stack their shits and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then he uh, he injects the serum into both Hill's severed head and his headless corpse or body, 
and he'll does he do the body too i didn't see the yeah. the body getting done but i guess i missed it yeah he injects it into the heart in the body and so the headless body and the bodiless head reactivate and uh he'll right yeah, away yeah we got this uh, great you get this great image uh where uh dr uh, herbert west is working on the head and is intent and focused on the head and the headless body is coming up right behind him with his hands outstretched like Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love how uh, Dr. Hill says, West. And Herbert's like, <laughs> Herbert's like, yes, I'm Herbert West. What else do you, how do you feel? What do you, can you see anything? Like, what else do you have to say? And it's like, you, and he writes down, okay, you, bastard. And <laughs> and the and his, the headless corpse just knocks uh, West out. And uh, at this point, uh, Meg and Dan go to see Megan's father. And this is where Dan discovers the weird file that Doctor Hill has on Megan, where there's like he's got sent like parts of like a lock of her hair and photos of her and like notes about like articles like, of homecoming queen sophomore year blah blah blah. So he's been obsessed with her for a while. It's kind of gross and disgusting. And this is when, and so um, Barbara, Barbara and Dan go back to the house, and this is when Doctor Hill goes, basically steals all of Herbert's notes and the and the um, the the reanimator juice, and goes back to the hospital, sneaks into the morgue by putting a fake head on top of his body and carrying his real head in a side bag. Uh, which is pretty. The whole stuff with the headless body is hilarious. Like I love how it's he a just, very funny gag. Yeah, yeah. How he, yeah, just, he just kind of like sidles in into the too, all very like sneakily yeah. with his like fake head. Mm-hmm. Did we uh, did we mention that he'd uh, lobotomized um, Dean Halsey? Well, that's the thing. When Dan and Bar and Meg go to see, uh, basically go to break into his office, they go into the the padded cell, and that's when Dan discovers that. Uh, Dean Halsey has been lobotomized. So, like, that's when Dan realizes, oh, Dr. Hill is just straight-up evil. And then he finds all the the files on Meg. So it's like, oh, my God, this creepy guy. So they decide to go back to his place, or back to her place, to be safe. And this is when uh, Dr. Hill uses his powers of hypnosis, even as a severed head, to... Because the whole point of introducing the hypnosis was, how does he control all the corpses? And there's a funny thing in the uh, the feature-length da- documentary on making the film where Brian Houston says, like, turns out it doesn't matter how he can control the corpses. <laughs> like, nobody ever questioned that in the movie. <laughs> it's true. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, there is a there's a short scene where, like, Meg goes home. Yeah. Um, she's distraught. And Dan goes back to his place. Mm-hmm. And he finds um, uh, Herbert West uh, knocked out. Yeah. And Herbert West wakes up. And he's like, oh, he's stolen all my stuff. And... Um, they start stressing out, and then Herbert West is like, don't worry, um, he wants to kill us because we're the only ones who know that he didn't come up with this. Yeah. So uh, we just have to wait him out. He'll come to us. Mm-hmm. And then Dan realizes that it's not um, just them that they want, that he's obsessed with Meg as well, and he has yeah. to go and protect her. So then mm-hmm. he goes and he goes to her place. Yeah. But it's at this point that um, Megan's father comes and kidnaps her and brings her to... Um to to Hill and that's when things get real yeah. gross. Yeah, he knocks yeah, it does really get gross. Yeah, he knocks Dan out easily and then kidnaps his daughter. 
uh, and brings her there. And yeah, things get quickly. <laughs> yeah. You just cut out there, Kit, but I'm guessing you said things get icky really quickly. Really perverse. I think I said, perverse. But... Okay. Yeah. 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 So let's discuss that infamous scene between well, Dr. Hill and Megan. Not in I any, guess, I guess any gross way. Hats but... off to Barbara Crampton. I don't know. Um, that must have been hard to film. Yeah. And she's the thing is she's repeatedly worked with Stuart Gordon since. So a little bit so of back, I guess yeah. A little bit of background. Here and also you gotta remember like Stuart Gordon is not he's not a pervert weirdo. Um like No, but we know that Doctor Hill is, and this yes. is a very pervy scene. Yes. So um the film was written so that for the first half Herbert West is the villain, but in the second half Doctor Hill becomes the villain. Um and he's this they're like you know, revealed to be a much worse villain because all Herbert West cares about is the work. He just wants to bring dead people back to life. Uh, he doesn't really want to hurt anyone, but if someone gets hurt around him, he's not too upset by it. Um, so Stuart Gordon described Dr. Hill's lust for Megan after he is reanimated as the resurrected dead having no self-control over emotions. So there's no ego or super ego, but only the id left in terms of personality. Um... And as for that scene, apparently another actress almost had the role, but her mother read the script and she instantly backed out when they got to that scene. Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah. When Barbara Crampton was offered the role, she had reservations but discussed the scene with Stuart Gordon and he made her feel comfortable and so she signed on to do the film. The scene was shot on a closed set with next to no one present. Uh, They filmed it quickly. I think it only took like three hours to film or through the, the whole sequence of her on the table. Um, and got it over with. Although Barbara Crampton has said that um, she's proud of the scene because it pulled no punches and it like went to a place that people were not expecting at all for a film yeah, to it, go. Yeah, it does pull no punches. Yeah, and it's also a scene where um, basically like they're like, if if you're gonna know this film from one scene, it's that scene. Uh, but she said that it felt like filming it took forever, uh, even though it I, was. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like forever watching it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I always thought like, oh, it's a much shorter scene than it actually. Like I, in my head, I'm like, that scene's like, it's like two seconds. No, it drags on for a little bit. Um, yeah, there's um, because she's stripped naked immediately, and um, yeah, because the head is there just leering on the table, which is the comedic part, which uh, almost makes you chuckle if it wasn't so uh, pervy and, and gross. Um, but just the way it's leering at her naked body, just from its little, um, the pan. Like little, uh, yeah, it's little like tinfoil pan or whatever it is. And then the body, of course, the, uh, the headless body is, uh, just groping her just disgustingly. Yeah. Um, and then it like picks up the head so that the head can go down and, on her. It, and it's a visual <laughs> pun. You can understand what happens next. It's given her head. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. I got it. Yeah. So then, um, but he doesn't quite get luckily because our heroes Herbert West and Dan break in. And well, our hero and Herbert West. I don't know if Herbert West is quite uh, a hero at this point. I think he's kind of yeah. become a hero at this point. Um, I, I do love the scene where he's it's like, like an anti-hero. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's definitely more of an anti-hero. I love how he's like ridiculing like Doctor West. He's like, "Have you seen yourself? You look ridiculous." Like, well, I, who's gonna? It's believe- actually got a. Yeah, it, it's got a really great line that I even had to write down. He was like, "Look at you, you're a distinguished doctor, trysting with a bubble-headed co-ed." <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, who's gonna believe you? You're a you're, you're a bodiless head. Why don't you get a job in a sideshow? Like, 
I that's why I love this character and the way Jeffrey Coombs plays him because he's just like, yeah, I get it. You're a severed head and you you like knocked me out, but I don't give a crap. Um, I also like I also like how it's established that the link between the head and the body is not you know perfect. Yeah. Because um like the like the door there's a knock at the door mm-hmm. and then uh, the the head has to kind of like look over the door and then he says to the body he's like the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The um yeah the it's. It's interesting because it's like Dr. Gale has such an ego that like he he ridicule like he kind of like is kind of like his own body gives him grief like he's, he's disappointed in it. Um, <laughs> and so just as they're about to break out, this is when it's revealed that the doctor has reanimated like six different corpses in this room. And this is where we get this crazy naked zombie f- gross out freak out. Oh yeah, it's it's zombies of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and they're all stark naked, just all in the all together. Yeah, um, it's like a gosh darn. Who's the guy that did Midsummer? Ari Aster. Yeah, Ari Aster. sort of. Yeah, it's, I, <laughs> it's a lot of naked uh, nakedness. So the zombie climax was shot entirely in one day, and it was one long sixteen-hour shooting day. Now, to clarify for people that aren't in the film industry. Um, it's not that like from when people arrived in the morning until they left at night, it was 16 hours. It was 16 hours in front of the camera, which is crazy. So that means it was like almost a 20 hour day for, for the crew. I've, I've been there. It sucks. Um, and, uh, yeah, oh yeah, it was, it's really good. It was just getting coverage. And like, as I was describing before, I'm not sure if it was in the part that got cut off, but in the end when, um, they're trying, like the producer just said, like, just, don't show any full frontal nudity and they got away with it because it was a lot of shadow but now the HD scan has like revealed a lot oh, more. Oh you can see those you can see those wings. Yeah. So like the uh, the cinematographer who we haven't really talked about yet but it's in, uh, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but the special effects for this were handled also by the guy that did the opening scene John Carl Buechler. Um he's the yes. he did like her, right he, he he basically had to come up with with individual causes of death for all the individual zombies so that they all have their own individual um, uh, unique look. So there's like the shotgun zombie, there's the burn zombie. Yeah, we we heard a bit about this before when they were trying to pick the initial cadaver. Yeah, when they were trying to pick the initial cadaver, we heard him run through it. No good because it's too burnt. This body's no good because it's rotting. This body has a shotgun blast to the head. But they all were able to come back. So... Yep. Uh, and so at this point, this is when, you know, this is this is when uh, 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 Dean Halsey, like, regains some of his humanity and realizes that his daughter's being attacked, so he starts fighting off the other zombies. Um, and Herbert West goes for the jugular when he decides, uh, and he, like, he crushes Dr. Hill's head, like, just stabs his eye, thumb in the eye. It's really gnarly how, like, and then they just he just throws the head away, and it's a splat it like him. a watermelon, yeah. It's yeah. Something. So there's he throws it out the door too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crushes it like water yeah. and chucks it out the door, and it splats. The security the guard, by the way, has peeked in by this point and then run off. Yeah, he chose to do the <laughs> smart thing. He just got out of there. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so, um, what's next? And so, uh, uh, Herbert West says, well, "I have a plan." Hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Herbert West says, I did have a plan coming in here. Overdose. And so he, like, jams two needles full of the, uh, the reanimator juice into the headless uh, body of Dr. Hill. And it goes so crazy that the intestines reanimate and start choking out uh, Herbert West and drags him into the smoke. 
The zombies also are but, freaking out at this point. Yes. But he's also able to, like, in his dying breath, he calls over to Dan, who's escaping with Meg, and he's like, my research! Yeah. And he throws him his bag. Because so apparently it was all about the work for him. Oh, totally. So the zombies at this point have all lost their, like, they have no control over them now, so they're just wreaking havoc. Like, one of them rips open an electrical panel and starts a fire. One of them dumps acid on the floor. Um, it's all, the poop is hitting the fan. And then... So Dan and Meg escape with uh, with Herbert West notes, and just as they're about to get into the um, into the elevator to escape, the burn zombie comes through and starts choking Meg. And so Dan has to run, grab an axe, and he chops off the burn zombie's arm. But Meg has unfortunately died. Succumbed. Yeah. Where do we go from there, guys? Yeah, and the uh, the the well, the arm is still attached to her neck, and it's still choking her too. So he actually has to take that off. Yeah. And then it's still moving on the ground. Yeah. And, it's still and yeah, it looks like end. she's dead. So so he brings her up to he the ER. Up first to the, the OR. And we uh, let a, it's a, a doctor there. She's she's there. Put table. It's the CPR. Yeah. Kit, you're cutting. Kit, 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 you're cutting. You're cutting out in and out. Sorry. It's all good. So, yeah. So it's, it's a reflection of the opening scene when Dan Kane is trying to save someone on the ER, he's back in that same ER, but this time with Meg. And so they're he's applying CR, they're trying CPR, they're trying to do the uh, the electroshock panels to try and bring her back. Um, but nothing works, and she unfortunately dies. And this is when he discovers there's one more bottle of reanimator juice in Herbert West's bag. And what happens next, Phil? He injects her with it. Yeah, it's a great thing where, like, you just see him stick the, the vial into her, her neck and it fades out to black except for the, the green glowing green. Juice, and yeah. you see the, the reanimator juice just go in and you hear the sound effect of a scream and she is back to life. So, guys, that was Reanimator. Um, yeah. First I, I liked, uh, by the way, sorry, I was cutting out towards the end. Mm-hmm. And so I just, uh, just like the way that it ended. Because you know that he was going to go for that. You know that that's what that was leading to. And then you're like, oh, maybe he's learned his lesson. Maybe he's not going to use it. Oh, you, you're damn right he's going to use it. Of course. Um, and we know uh, from experience that it never leads to good things. So it's it's a good cutoff. I'm glad that they didn't show any more after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for anybody who has seen Pet Cemetery, for example. Which came out right, yeah. like four years after this. It did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Stephen King wrote the novel Pet Cemetery in eighty three or eighty four. Yeah. So roughly the same time. Yeah, as Reanimator came out. Yeah. yeah. Although, so I gotta ask, Graham, have you seen Bride of the Reanimator? Yes, I've seen all the Reanimator movies except for the the, so, the twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen ones. So where does it pick up? Like, what happens after? So they pull. Uh, there's no. They pull the idea of of Herbert West working in a war zone. So him and Dan are working in a war zone uh, trying to save corpses, but it fails miserably. And then they wind up continuing their research by... um, Herbert West uh, convinces Dan to keep doing it by saying, we've saved the heart of Meg. And so we can... We'll actually try and... As opposed to like bringing people back from the dead, we're actually going to try and create life. So he... Uh, combines different body parts together, like so. He he creates this little creature that's an eyeball and four fingers that he like fuses together and reanimates it, and it's this living thing. He's like, oh, so I can create new life now. So he decides 
they're going to piece together a woman to bring Meg back to life. So wait, how does do they explain how uh, Herbert West survived? I guess he just didn't die. Yeah, he he escaped the explosion narrowly. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the bigger thing is after watching this, I'm like, oh yeah, like, and Doctor Hill comes back, but like his head is totally squished in this movie. But uh, he. Uh, this, the severed you can't keep a good severed head down so he's back and uh, when it comes to mobility because his body is totally gone he does something something interesting happens where he gains the ability to fly oh, oh wow. what's the interesting thing uh, well they they sew <laughs> bat wings to his head so he's able Jesus to, he's able to fly now <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's got to be seen to be believed. I think Bride of Reanimator might be on Shutter. It might be on Tubi, and not, it's somewhere online for sure. Are they good? Uh, yeah, it's it doesn't hold a candle to the original. Neither of the sequels do, but Bride has has its own charms to it. Beyond Reanimator, uh, it was made many years later. It was it was shot in South Africa because they had a tax break there. Um, it's nowhere near as good. Basically, like, Herbert West is in jail, and so, uh, this young boy who saw, like, a reanimated corpse of Herbert, that Herbert West did, like, saw Herbert West getting arrested, is now a, uh, a prison doctor. And so he decides to, like, he's obsessed with Herbert West's work, and he decides, okay, Herbert West, you're going to re- resume your work from inside this prison. And things go wrong, as they always do. Um, when did things go right? That's what I'd like mm-hmm. to know. Well, that's Reanimator Four, House Reanimator. <laughs> He's like, ah, it took me twenty-five years, but I finally got it, uh, got this uh, formula figured out. But no, it's, it's a the, happy tale of happy tale of a guy saving people from death. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, but no, it, it never turns out well. Persistence pays off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like the legacy of Reanimator. I mean, like the the one thing that kind of gave it a boost in the late 90s was it was mentioned in the Academy Award fi- winning film American Beauty. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah, I've only seen that movie once. When when did that happen? So when Kevin Spacey and uh, What's-His-Face, the teenager, are getting high. Wes Bentley. Yeah, Wes Bentley. Um, they're talking about Reanimator. And, uh, oh, Cool. And they're like, oh, yeah, the guy carry the severed head carries around the head. Ha, ha, ha. It's funny. Um, and I remember me and my horror uh, movie-loving buddies that saw it were just like, yeah, reanimator! Um, <laughs> Disrupting the theater. Yeah. Well, we watched it on video together, but we were like, yeah, it's reanimator. This movie's awesome. Uh, and it wasn't awesome. Um, but, uh, oh. but, but that scene was. So um, what else can, can we say about reanimator? Um, so the interesting thing, so the scene where Dr. Hill's intestines attack Herbert West was achieved through filming the action backwards, where they basically had the intestines wrapped around Jeffrey Coombs and pulled the intestines off of him out through the, the fake body through a fake wall. And then when they reversed it and played it back, it looked okay. like the intestines were exploding out of the body and like choking him. Something else interesting. Yeah, it looks pretty good interesting for the time is that unlike a lot of horror movies of the era, this film actually got stellar reviews, and everybody was expecting it to get horrible reviews. Stuart Gordon was expecting it to do poorly, but um, but yeah, it actually got really, really good reviews, and it got good reviews from Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael even put it on her best of the year list at the end of the year. 
Um, and they decided to release it unrated because... So Charles Band, the infamous Charles Band of Empire Pictures, Full Moon Features, uh, he is known for being a very, very cheap filmmaker. He distributed the film, but had didn't put any money into it, had no creative impact, although he did insist <laughs> that... Um, that they hire a very specific cinematographer and uh, that cinematographer sorry looking it up uh, uh, was Mac Alberg so Mac Alberg would become an ally of Gordon's on set because Stuart Gordon had never done any film work and he and Mac Alberg actually taught him how to transition from stage direction to film direction um, Stuart Gordon would like would go on to nickname him the professor because he like taught Gordon so much and Gordon said like in the interview that I saw that he still continues to learn from him uh, they would go on to collaborate on seven more films together um, Alberg would bounce back and forth between lower budgeted independent films and higher budget Hollywood fare he was a cinematographer for Michael Jackson's black or white video he was a cinematographer for Beverly Hills Cop 3 he did both Brady Bunch movies um, but he also would go back and do super low budget stuff. Like his last credit is the 2006 film that was a Charles Band production that's titled Evil Bong. The uh, Evil Bong? Yes, oh, yes, he did the Evil Bong, Evil the first Bong Evil Bong things. movie. Um, and unfortunately, Albert passed away in 2012 at the age of 81. David Bowie is a huge fan of this film as well, and for a while called it his favorite movie. Well, he was oh, wow. a huge fan of the movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, exactly. Um, but yeah, so as I was saying, uh, Brian Usen decided to put the film out uh, unrated because they couldn't see a way of doing an R-rated cut and making it work theatrically. On home video, you had a little bit more leeway when it came to R-rated cuts, but doing theatrical ones got a lot more scrutiny, so it couldn't get a super wide release. But it did well financially, but it was on video where the film really found its audience, and really that's why like five years later they were able to do Bride of Reanimator, and that's kind of what the success of Reanimator uh, allowed basically Charles Band signed Stuart Gordon to a three picture deal so he did the film and to do another um, Lovecraft adaptation so he did the film Dolls he did From Beyond and then he also did Robot Jocks those are the three films he did with Charles Band and then he went back and did another movie with Charles Band in the 90s called Castle Freak which was right so in between Fortress and Space Truckers which were his two highest budgeted films uh, Stuart Gordon had a meeting with Charles Band and he noticed there was a poster on the wall for a movie called Castle Freak that had like a Quasimodo figure in the in the poster and he asked Charles Band hey what's that movie about and he's like well that movie's called Castle Freak and it's about a castle and within it there is a freak um, and Stuart's like oh so when is it coming out and he's like oh in about six months and uh, then Charles Band said do you want to write and direct it and <laughs> So they had no script. No, they only knew that because Charles Band owned a castle in Romania. So they, uh, they, he basically was like, "You, we have a free location." And so uh, Stuart Gordon reunited Barbara Crampton with Jeffrey Coombs. They play a married couple who are like moving to like uh, a castle in Romania that they inherited, and within it there's ca a, a freak. So Stuart Gordon actually like had like three weeks to come up with it. And he was only given $500,000, but he was like, it was freedom and it was fun and he was able to do whatever he wanted uh, within Castle Freak. Although the interesting thing is that Paramount Pictures was distributing um, 
full moon features films at the time that Charles Band were producing. Um, but Castle Freak kind of killed that um, relationship because it was so, like, as we've learned, Stuart Gordon does not pull punches. And in Castle Freak, he didn't pull punches either. There's some seriously gross stuff in it. And uh, it, it kind of killed the relationship between Paramount Pictures and Full Moon Features. So, uh, Stuart Gordon would go on to do Fortress, which was a big hit. And then he did Space Truckers, which was a, uh expensive sci-fi movie. Uh, we should also point out that he really liked casting um, Jeffrey Coombs and stuff. So, Jeffrey Coombs and Barbara Crampton were both in his film from beyond uh they're also both in castle freak jeffrey coombs was also in i think he's in he's in fortress as well he's in a bunch of his other work um and jeffrey coombs and uh stuart gordon even collaborated in 2012 on a stage play which was a one-man show about the life of edgar Allan poe starring jeffrey coombs as edgar Allan poe oh cool yeah so they had a long a long long relationship and and gordon like after decades went back to doing theater with like reanimator the musical and um, uh, the Edgar, Nevermore, the Edgar Allan Poe one-man show, and the last thing he was trying to get made was the to adapt the show, the Edgar Allan Poe one-man show into a movie. They did a Kickstarter. It unfortunately didn't raise the necessary funds to make it. So that was the last project he did. I mean, he did a couple episodes of, um, like I was saying, of uh, Masters of Horror. But uh, but not much else. And those episodes are both adaptations of literary work as well. I think we, we really can't ignore the fact that, like, so much of what... That Stuart Gordon really brought H.P. Lovecraft back to, like, a, a pop culture awareness. Because, like, no one really knew who Lovecraft was when... Before Reanimator. Like, Reanimator actually kind of made Lovecraft accessible in a way. Even though Reanimator in tone and feel is nothing like a, a Lovecraft story. Um... Oddly enough, my uh, my first uh, encounter with Lovecraft that I can remember, yeah, uh, was watching an episode of the Real Ghostbusters cartoon. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Uh, where they have to they have to confront Cthulhu, and I didn't know like there's a cult of Cthulhu, and then they resurrect Cthulhu, and the Ghostbusters have to take him down. Um, yeah. I didn't realize this was an H.P. Lovecraft story at the time, and I wouldn't realize that for like years and years later. But yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing, like, his influence is much more felt than... Because his actual works, like, so much of what Lovecraft does is he describe, he's, he, he describes things as being undescribable. It's all very vague and, like, it's, it's an... Un- yes, it's a, it's a color that, that no human eye has ever seen before. It's like, well, what does that look like? <laughs> that's, so that's always been the issue no. with, with the color out of space, the, the adaptation. It's been done many times. And what they normally do is always just kind of do it as purple because purple doesn't appear in nature. So they, uh, uh, in the Richard Stanley adaptation of The Color Out of Space, which is which is out now, um, they use a, a version of purple. And there was a, I think a German film that was black and white uh, that came out in 2010, which was an adaptation of The Color Out of Space. And they shot it in black and white. And then the only color in the film is when somebody sees the color. But still, That's it's like... Neat. But still, it's like, I kind of feel it's a little lazy writing to be like, describe the color. Oh, it's a color that has never been seen by the human eye before. So you don't need to describe it. Um, you know, the 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 undescribable horrors or, or horror beyond human comprehension. That's how we would describe everything. So, yeah. Um, 
Final thoughts on Reanimator, guys? Oh, did we uh, did we mention? I'm not sure if this was in the uh, lost portion, but did we mention that Stuart Gordon also had a hand in writing "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids"? That was in the lost portion. So yeah, so yeah. Stuart Gordon he he wrote "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" and uh, was gonna and was a producer on the film with Brian Usna, and that kind of actually convinced Disney to start making kids films again because they had. They kind of like the 80s was a rough time for Disney. They hadn't been doing so well. They were basically living off of their theme parks. And then it was the one two punch of The Little Mermaid and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids that got Disney back into like children's movies. But like live action children's exactly, movies. Exactly. Like, yeah, live action yeah. children's movies. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, he, he was very well rounded. He even, made a children's film called The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, I believe was the title of it, from like, ni- I think in 1997. That sounds like a Charles like Band movie. Hmm? That sounds like a Charles Band movie. The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit? Yeah. Um, let me see here. It was a 1998 comedy film directed by Stuart Gordon. Oh, it's actually an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury play that he did on stage. Oh. And the film stars Edward James Almos... Um, Joe Montaigne, S.A. Morales, Clifton Collins Jr.'s Jr., um, and that's basically everyone else. And it was actually like released by Touchstone Pictures, which is a division of Disney. There you go. Mm-hmm. And and for what it's worth, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, uh, that was a really good kids movie. I really enjoyed that as a kid. Yeah, yeah there's like so much Stuart Gordon like stuff on it, like the the giant ants and the the body horror of being shrunk. Yeah. Yeah. So what I had heard about Honey I Shrunk the Kids, I don't have an official source on it, was that it wasn't initially brought to Disney. I think it was initially brought to Charles Band, and Charles Band passed on it, but then like ripped off the Honey I Shrunk the Kids tropes for like Double Man and stuff like that. Yeah, probably. Like I, I wouldn't surprise. Like Charles Band, he's a notorious idea thief. Like he famously had the rights to. Doctor Strange lost them and then just made a Doctor Strange movie like anyways and called it like uh, let me see here what is it called and it stars Jeffrey Coombs as doc- as not Doctor Strange uh, what is that movie Doctor Mordred <laughs> Mordred I'm doc- thinking Doctor Weird Doctor Mordred <laughs> Doctor Mordred which Doctor is- Odd and if you look up the image of Dr. Mordred, it actually, it, it's, it's just Dr. Strange. But yeah, Charles Band is notorious. Like he's milked the evil bong movie into the ground. He also does the ginger dead man. Oh he's, God. Uh, yeah, he's done so many terrible movies. Evil Bong 2, King Bong. <laughs> A thousand Puppet Master movies that nobody likes. Um... The Dolls movies, Demonic Toys, Dollman vs. Demonic Toys. He did do the Prehysteria. Do you remember Prehysteria? That was that movie oh, that yeah, was done totally to cash... Did. About the small dinosaurs that was done to cash in on uh, the popularity of Jurassic Park. I vaguely remember that, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I've only seen the first one. Uh, I mean, yeah, I've never seen the sequels, yeah. Hero. Yeah, they, they, they cast them like right before. Um, yeah. But I think it was released after the fact to sort of cash in on that. Oh, it was totally released after the fact to cash in on it, yeah. It's almost like they waited. It's like from, you know, if you like Jurassic Park, you'll like this. If you, and starring the star of Last Action Hero, Austin O'Brien, that's it. 
who also appeared in My Girl 2, which is such a weird idea for a sequel. Um, yeah, oh, that totally. Is a, My Girl one. 2, The Revenge. Um, <laughs> they could have done a reanimator My Girl uh, 2 uh, crossup. That would have been fun. That would have been awesome, oh, totally, yeah. yeah. like a reanimator <laughs> Mac is back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, final thoughts on reanimator, Phil? Fun times. That's basically all I have to say. Yeah. Kit, what are your final thoughts? It was really good. I, uh, I enjoyed it. I had a blast watching it uh, this morning. Uh, it's a rare morning movie watch for me. But, you know, mm-hmm. who cares what happens anymore? We're living in the uh, post-apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love this movie. I'm glad I watched it. If For, like, 105 minutes, I had my mind taken off of all the horrible things that are going on right now. And it... Um, yeah, it's it's sad that Stuart Gordon has passed away and he didn't get a chance to do one more big film. Like, his last uh, feature film release was stuck in 2007, like I was saying. His last directing credit for anything uh, film-related was an episode of Fear Itself from 2008, which was the network version of Masters of Horror, which only lasted for a season. That was produced by J.J. Abrams. Um, and it's just... A sad bummer that that this is a bittersweet bittersweet rewatch of Reanimator and not just a hey I should just throw on Reanimator because I'm, I'm I want to get cheered up I love this movie oh, I, yeah. I think I'll, everyone involved like I am so thrilled that Barbara Crampton has come back to acting she gave up acting for a while in the late 90s and 2000s and then her first role back in a long time was in the film You're Next where the filmmakers were like who could play the mom of this family? Like, well, let's look at Barbara Crampton. She must be old enough to play the mom of a bunch of, like, late 20-year-olds. And then they, they found her, and it's like, oh, you don't look old at all. And so, like, they had to age, they had to age her up. She is, she is still an incredibly attractive woman. I think pushing into her 60s at this point. No, she's in her 50s at this point. But, um, and she's still acting right now. She's producing. She actually has produced a remake of the Stuart, Stuart Gordon film Castle Freak, which is written and directed by uh, an all-female cast and crew. Um, cool. Yes, yeah, so she has done a lot of a lot of excellent Hats off work. To... Hats off to Barbara Crampton. Yeah, and she's someone that's like she. It's it's kind of like uh, Phil. If you remember when we went to go see Class of 1984, and Lisa Langlois said, "I wanted to hide from this stuff for so long." But then you meet the kids who grew up on it, and they're so wonderful and creative, and and not at all what you expect. It's kind of the same thing with Barbara Crampton, although she never ran away, she never shied away from horror. She was always very open about it. That's why she kept on collaborating with Stuart Gordon over and over and over again. And but she said it's the kids who grew up watching these movies that are that are still doing the most creative stuff out there right now. Like really, Mm -hmm. the only horror is the only independent genre left. Um, everything else has kind of died, so. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, <laughs> horror is still surviving, and it will survive. So, with that, I guess we have to say, rest in peace, Stuart Gordon. You will be sorely missed. Rest in power. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, Reanimator is one of those films that I, I think you can directly point to coloring my, my mixture of comedy and horror in, in what I do. So. With that being said, um, we'll be back hopefully soon with another episode. Um, yeah, this this worked out okay. There were some technical glitches, but I think we've uh, we've gotten it down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see how the final episode goes. I think the plan we should still do transfers. Let's keep that Charles Band train going. Oh yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so 
for Death by Video. I've been Phil. I've been Kip. And I'm still Graham saying, please be sure to rewind, keep safe, and we'll see you next time. Wash your hands. Yes. <laughs> Don't, yeah, exactly. Goodbye.